0: I totally believe that great ideas come from everywhere. In companies, you don't want just the product team thinking about the product. The finance team thinks about finance. The marketing team thinks about marketing. You want everyone all the time feeling like they're an owner and they can have a point of view on any part of the company.
1: Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Sarah Fryer, CEO of Nextdoor. Sarah visited Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students like me sit down to interview leaders from around the world. I'm Zach Doherty, an MBA student of the class of 2024. In our conversation, we discuss the mindset behind embracing life-changing risks, the leveraging of technology to bring people together, and the fundamental importance of building strong communities. Sarah, welcome back to the GSB.
0: It's always so fun to be at the GSB, although this is a much fancier GSB than the one I went to. I almost went down the, down the street. But you moved the birds, so now I'm totally confused.
1: We are so excited to have you as our first speaker, not only as a GSB alum, but you have literally done it all. I think you have a story that can speak to each and every single person in this audience. And just to paint a very small picture of what that looks like, we have a short graphic. Oh my god. So you can see, so I'm born and raised in Northern Ireland, you've rode crew at Oxford, you took on Wall Street as the girl facing the bull, you've worked alongside Jack Dorsey, you've launched two IPOs, you've met the Queen. <laughs> I did. And now you're here with me.
0: It's just been a constant rise. <laughs>
1: And so I'm hoping the luck of the, your luck of the Irish rubs off on me in this brief time that I have with you on stage. But if we take a look back at where it all started, it seems like luck really had nothing to do with it. And so can you tell us what it was like growing up in Northern Ireland and how that shaped your perspective and life trajectory? Sure.
0: I, I would never say luck doesn't have a play in it. It absolutely does. But it's definitely luck is whatever the... The preparation meets opportunity, but you got to grab it. Um, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I realize today I have a very bad American accent, but if we were to go and have probably an LPF or something, you'd start to hear the Northern Irish accent coming out. Um, but yeah, I grew up during the Troubles, and it was not a pretty time. I grew up on the border, just outside Derry. Um, my local times called Straban had the absolutely, it still is. If you go look it up in, in Wikipedia or whatever, had the, the dubious honor of being the most bombed ton of its size for, I think, three decades. And that includes during the Bosnian Serbian crisis and so on. So we still won on that front. Um, but on the other side, it was an amazing place for community and, We'll arc back to it, I'm sure, when we come to Nextdoor. But I feel like I got to see Nextdoor in real life before there was a thing of virtual next door, Because my mom was the local nurse, my dad was the local personnel manager of the local mill. The whole village existed because of this mill, was founded by the Quakers. And there was rarely a night where someone did not knock on our door for some reason, um, whether they had a medical problem. My mom was actually the midwife. So if you were giving birth, and most births happened at home, even at that stage, my mom would be there to catch the baby, um, usually pushing the doctor out of the way. She thought they were useless, which always makes me laugh because my brother's not a doctor. So she likes to <laughs> remind him it's not that useful. Um, uh, my dad would be there if you needed a job, if you he needed help with money. Um, and there could be all sorts of societal things, social things going on. Um, and they were always there. And I think that was just a great grounding for me on what it was, what it meant to invest back in your community. And in doing that, what that does for you. Um, my parents are now in their eighties. They still live in that same house and they're still a formidable part of their community.
1: And now, all those experiences growing up and finding strength in community eventually led you to the GSB where there's an equally strong community. Mm-hmm. What were some of the key opportunities that you took advantage of during your time here and lessons that you took away that you continue to apply today?
0: Yeah, so so probably the, the biggest reason I ended up here was a willingness to take a lot of risk, for better or worse. Um, even as a kid growing up, I was funny, I had a doctor's appointment this week and the doctor was asking me, you know, issues. And I was like, not a lot. He's like, Have you ever broken anything? I was like, oh, broken things. Let's talk about that. And when I started kind of spewing them all off, he's like, what did you do? And I was like, I don't know. I just thought I was a risk taker. I was a tomboy growing up. And that kind of kept going through career. Um, I, I, when I was at Oxford in my undergrad. I, someone offered me the opportunity to go off to Ghana, I was, I was, um, actually, my degree is called metallurgy, economics management, but material science. And my tutor at Oxford was figuring out how to release gold out of sulfide ores, and it was moving from a lab process to an industrial process called biox. And he said, would you like to go over there and actually see it in action? And I I was like, count me in. I had no idea what I was signing up for, like getting to like no idea what a mine is like in a place like Ghana at that time Um, and really kind of showing up and finding both some amazing things that happened, but also really recognizing a place I didn't feel particularly welcome. Um, There were almost no women on that mine at all. Uh, So that was a really good moment of like, I took a risk. Part of it played out, but not all of it. So I kind of came home a little bit tail between my legs, actually, frank, frankly, from that experience. I, I zagged the other way, joined McKinsey, very different. But because I'd been on that mine, they sent me to South Africa. And that was another moment of like taking a risk. So I went to South Africa in 1996, right after apartheid had ended. Um, it wasn't particularly safe. So another kind of a little bit <laughs> taking life risks as well as career risks. Um, but it was such an amazing time to go see a country being born, the Rainbow Nation. Mandela had risen. Um, and the country that at the time, it makes me sad a little to see South Africa today, but that really wanted to kind of bring about this whole new world where the Rainbow Nation, everyone kind of joined hands. Um, because I went to McKinsey, this is the moment where I get to the GSB, I'd never heard of an MBA, frankly. I had no idea what this thing was, but I was like, two years—you could pay for me to go somewhere for two years, and I can pick where. And and in my complete naivety, and it could have been seemed like hubris. I really only applied to two schools, um, and I was so incredibly blessed that I picked to come to this one. Um, and frankly, again, it was a little bit of a risk. Like I didn't really know anything about California. I'd never seen the school till the day. I showed up to move in and drove down Palm Drive, right? How many people have done that for the first time? And you're literally like, I'm in a dream. This can't be real. In fact, when I lived in Schwab and I'd open up my blinds every morning and the sky was always blue. Remember, I grew up in Northern Ireland. This is a big difference. I literally called it The Truman Show, if you've ever seen that movie. I'm like, I feel like I'm inside the bubble. And you know, everyone's chipper. good morning, Sarah, good morning. <laughs> Professor Saloner, I'd love to talk about strategy today. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, it was an amazing outcome. So I guess like the arc is take risks. You think that you, you know, you have to keep doing these things to build expertise and that, you know, somehow if you zag, it's going to be all these risks you're going to take. It's so, it's all in your head, like absolutely all in your head. And I think my big learning in getting to Stanford and even subsequent is, it is really good to take zigzag risks and to lean in to just these moments. Like, it was a cocktail party that took me to South Africa. It was a conversation with a partner at McKinsey who was like, you worked on a mine? And, you know, again, it was very much community and social interactions that layered on top of a career path.
1: So not only have you talked the talk, but you have walked the walk with taking phenomenal risks, particularly around your career at Square. So prior to Square, you were working at Goldman. You'd been there for over 10 years, you had reached the level of managing director, had a very successful tenure, and then decided to take the, the huge risk to join this small, relatively uncertain company called Square. Can you tell us what motivated that decision and what was going through your head at the time?
0: Yeah, so I definitely hit a moment, actually at Goldman during the, the great financial crisis, so 08, 09, where I really felt I lost that moment of like purpose. And my parents, as you can hear, kind of are very big on a reason to be in the world. Um, Today, I think a lot about this Ikigai framework, if you know it, Japanese framework. So it's, you know, what the world needs, what you're good at, what you're passionate about, and then importantly, what you can get paid for, right? Without the bottom, it's a hobby, and this makes it a job. Um, When I looked at that, the great financial, that moment when... You know, Goldman was on the front page of, the, uh, of Vanity Fair, I think it was, as the vampire, no, Rolling Stone magazine as the vampire squid, or the vampire, yeah, the vampire squid. It was a hard moment. My parents were calling me and kind of checking in, like, is everything okay? And, uh, you know, who do you work for? And, uh, like, there's <laughs> a lot of fear. And I'm, I'm very proud of, of my work at Goldman. I'm proud of the firm and what we did. But it, it made me realize that for me personally, Purpose was in some ways everything. Now, it still took me three years to extract myself because I had a lot of fear at the time. You know, first of all, (laughs) the world had almost ended from an economic standpoint. So you did not take having a job lightly at all. Number two, I had two very young kids at the time. And you know my job kind of worked for me, so it was hard as a working mom to say, I'm going to throw all those balls up in the air, and we'll just see how they land on the other side, and I'm going to go into corporate, is kind of how people talk about it. But in the end, it was a push from a couple of mentors. I actually did a small hop to Salesforce, so I give Mark Benioff a lot of credit for kind of pulling me out of Goldman and saying, you really would be a better operator. It was also moments of learning about myself, like, these talks, I've been to many of them where I've listened to just incredible people. So uh, I'm going to start you low and you're, you're, you're free from the top is going to crescendo from here. But I think of them as um, it's almost like you're creating your own uh, patchwork quilt. You're going to get pieces of advice and information, something that might inspire you, something that feels really apropos, but then you are going to create the, the quilt that works for you. And so in a moment of being at Goldman, coming home one night, and my uh, at the time, my associate had gotten promoted to VP and it had taken us a couple of years to get her there. It was a lot of fighting for her. It was a lot of learning about me personally, about what it means to be an advocate for someone, not just a mentor. So you're really standing up for them in that meeting. But she made it over that finish line and I came home, and I, I'm, I keep pointing down here because my husband's just sitting here, but I my, my, was like, crack it open, a bottle of wine, a bottle of champagne tonight. And uh, David said something along the lines of, I've just never seen you this excited about a stock pick. And it kind of uh, just like, uh, annoyed, like sitting on a burr, annoyed me for a long time. I was like, maybe I'm actually doing the wrong thing. And then it was a moment of failure, frankly that made me finally make the decision. So I was in the the run to partner. I really thought it was my year. I was super excited. I felt like I had checked all the boxes. Um, I know most of you in this audience are complete overachievers, right? So we all have boxes. We're like, I got an A, I got an A plus, I got an A. Always done the right thing. And in that moment when I got the call, it was an early morning call that said, this is not your year. And in fact, partner years are every two years, so this is not your two years. Um, I went through the full ranges of grief just in that morning. I called my husband. He said, I'll walk over. Um, He said, don't cry. Don't cry in the office. I'm like, okay. It's okay to cry in the office these days. It was not okay at that point. Um, I walked downstairs. I'm Irish, so I swore like the whole way around the building. We have a very big lexicon of swear words when you're Northern Irish, Um, and once I'd walked the building a few times and kind of recomposed myself, he said, my husband's sounding like such, he should be up here, because I'm about to give him credit for a second moment of, like, insight, and I'll pull it to something that's important for all of you. He said, they've kind of set you free, and I was like, what are you talking about? They have devastated me, and he's like, they've set you free. Like, if you want to stay and push to be a partner, full support, but they've also allowed you in this moment to really look around. And that's where that moment of recognizing some of the things I was way more passionate about. I had kind of lost my sense of purpose. I knew I loved developing and working with people, which being a research analyst, that wasn't perfect for that because you are inherently working in a small team. You don't have a lot of force multiplication out to other people. And then the third piece of suddenly being somewhat free, it all worked in that moment. Um, and so as you think you're gonna move through your career, you're gonna end up in places, you're gonna have kind of built to a, a local maxima. But I would kind of push all of you to say, when you wanna to go to the next place, sometimes you have to tick down to go to the next, because in the end you wanna to build to a global maxima where you can have maximum impact based on what you're passionate about, what you're good at, what, you're, uh, uh, what you can get paid for. Like When all of those circles align, Then you hit flow, it's an amazing moment. And also having a great mentor, someone who will just really truth talk to you, is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle as well.
1: That's amazing and I really love the metaphor that you use about patching together that quilt and I'm sure that must have guided you also in your decision to ultimately leave Square after again, seeing it through its IPO, reaching a $30 billion market cap, It's very obvious in your story that this idea of connection is hugely important to you. And in speaking with people that have worked directly for you, the overwhelming feedback that I've heard is that you touch every person's life that you meet and make them feel like they're the most important person in the room. That's a direct quote. Um, In terms of your ability to be such a high achiever and high performer, what's your secret to balancing that with creating positive work cultures that make people excited and passionate to show up every day?
0: Yeah, so it, it it does have to start with what is important to you. So if you ask me what is my leadership like mantra, it is people first. Because I fundamentally believe that if you get the right people um, and you really let them fly, and that involves a lot of giving them a lot of autonomy, encouragement, tough love. But if you do that, then the A team with the B idea will always be the B team of the A idea, in my humble opinion. Like, we could probably debate that. I'm sure there's lots of case studies where you prove me wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, that's what I've seen over the course of my career. Um, because in those tough times, when you have done that investment in people, they will run through walls for you. And, you know, if I go back to Square for a moment, so Square was kind of a... It, it was such a shock to the system when I went there. So I went, you know, from... I can't remember how big Goldman was at the time—35,000, 40,000 people. I went to Salesforce, which was a 5,000-person company at the time, which also felt like so small. And then I went to Square, and it was 200 people. It was so strange to like be in a company where you actually could see everyone every single day—not just like get to know them, but like literally every day you were in their space. Um, and if you look at kind of the arc of Square at the time, it may probably have looked kind of very straight up and to the right. It's never like that inside companies. It is absolutely, you are paid to work on the things that aren't working. So you have a tendency to always think nothing is working when you're inside a company. Um, and that's also good learning about your own personal resilience and remembering to actually celebrate. But when Square went public, it was Awful. Like <laughs> we went, we went public at a time when the market had been closed for pretty kind of like right now, a very elongated moment in time. We had done our last funding round at about a three-ish billion-dollar valuation. I, to make it easier, it was about eighteen dollars a share. Because this is going to make it easy when I go to the next point. We hit the road. the The market is absolutely shitty. Um, our roadshow's not going that great. I know it's not going that great. The bankers are doing the best they can to be like, your book is almost covered. And I'm like, "Mm, that's not good in IPO. You need to be 20 times covered. Um, And I had a team with me that had never been kind of in the market. So they were like lapping in that. This is great. The book is getting covered. And like, and my stomach is just going, this is terrible. But like, you can't stop. You're on it. And then we get to that night of pricing. Which is actually the final moment where you, you could actually say at that moment we're pulling our offering. You could say that. But like, there's so much, it's like a tsunami that's coming behind you. Everyone's excited. People have flown into New York to ring the bell and so on. And so when the bankers priced the deal at eight bucks a share, so, so I said 18, eight bucks a share, I, oh, I just remember that night. It's like, I literally get goosebumps right now. But on the people front, I really felt like I was like, no, we can do this because you know what? It doesn't matter. We sold. We actually what we did to kind of get to the other side is we really shrank the deal overall. We sold seven percent of our um, of our company. Most IPOs sell about fourteen percent. So we said we hate this price, but we're gonna still push to the other side, raise money when you can. I think we raised $280 million. It's like such a small amount, actually, in hindsight. Um, but we're going to push to the other side. And then for the next year, our stock pretty much it, it broke offering. I think it got as low as six. It was brutal. And then so your question about people is so important. Because if you have the right team, who's mission driven, who's there for the right reason, and you have created um, a personal relationship almost with them, and they trust you, they will run through walls behind you. Um, and that was that moment when I saw that happen from a Square perspective. And it's crazy, right? We raised $280 million in that IPO. I think a year later, we did a billion dollar debt offering. I think two years later, we did a $3.5 billion debt offering at almost like 0%. It was crazy how the market then flipped. Um, and the stock really took off, like, wh- I think the market cap um, when I left, uh, the, the, right before I announced I was leaving, we had $100 billion market cap because we were on the road marketing in Chicago. And I remember that day because it was a really big deal to hit that market cap. So, you know, it, it, but it really came down to the people and having spent the time invested in the people. Now, your question was, how do you do that? It's hard. Like, you have to take the time because people are literally one person at a time. You can try to do some more scaled up things. So for example, I always, since I started working in corporate, um, I've always done a welcome wagon. So I kind of try to group people up, but whether it's once a month or whatever, anyone new joining Square, anyone new joining next door, I meet with them for an hour. And it's my way of kind of going around the room, there's no agenda, um, but it's kind of a touchable moment. And I always tell them, I want you to leave this room. There's only one thing I want to leave this room. I want you to feel like I am super approachable. Um, I want you to see me as a human. I introduce myself as like a human being, not as a CEO or a CFO or a strategist or whatever. But I'm like, I'm Sarah. I have two kids. I have a great husband. I grew up here. I want them to see me as a human for two reasons. Number one, when people see you as very accessible, They will come and tell you their best ideas. And I totally believe that great ideas come from everywhere. In companies, you don't want just the product team thinking about the product. The finance team thinks about finance. The marketing team thinks about marketing. You want everyone all the time feeling like they're an owner, and they can have a point of view on any part of the company. But the other thing that's really important, and I probably felt it more keenly even as a CFO, is risk. You also want people to feel that they can speak up no matter what. There's going to be no consequence. I always tell them, come tell me. What I hope is I'm going to say, mm, we know about that. Here's the mitigation. We're in good shape. But every once in a while, people bring you a risk. And you're like, huh, I hadn't thought that. that. Let me go sweat a little. And then we're going to figure out how to go mitigate it. But to me, that's like part of the why. Is that you want to keep those doors very open as a leader so people will come talk to you tell you it's how you'll build a great company
1: in terms of opening doors let's turn to next door
0: (laughs) oh good segue (laughs) well played (laughs) those irish jeans yeah
1: so it's very clear how mission driven and value oriented you are and again the focus of bringing people together Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be at the helm of a company whose sole purpose is to build and strengthen communities and human connectedness?
0: Yeah, so you all can kind of see the arc for me. Why, on the one hand, it was very hard to leave Square. Um, Absolutely loved what we had built. It was family almost. But getting to Nextdoor, the purpose just made it all seem like karmic almost. Um, Today, Nextdoor, if you don't, hopefully you know. if you don't know Nextdoor... I will be okay if you leave right now and go sign up. No problem. Um, But we serve about 85 million neighbors, verified neighbors on the platform, 310,000 different communities across 11 countries. And we fundamentally believe everyone's a neighbor. So this is a platform for anyone. Um, You know, we can't let you on until you're 13 and up, but pretty much everyone is part of a community. Um, And the decision to go there was... Number one, that purpose just really sang to me. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the themes, whether it's addressing themes of loneliness, whether it's addressing themes of things like cost of living. How do you help people make money in their community? Things like crisis response. In a moment of a true big crisis, we all lived it with COVID, but if you think about a hurricane, um, Hurricane Harvey blowing into Houston was actually a seminal moment in Nextdoor's history as a company. Because it was a moment when 911 went down. It got overloaded. And so the mayor of Houston actually got on TV and said, Hey, if you know that next door app, download it and please start helping your fellow neighbors. Because those were the people that showed up in a boat to take you off the roof of your house whenever everything was flooded. That's who sticks out the hand and pulls you out of the waters. And they don't ask, by the way, in that moment, like, how do you vote? Do you believe in gun control? Like, humans will help humans in times of need, which is something I love about the platform. Um, so the purpose was big, but there was also an extra element of feeling like I had to step up in the world and, and lean into that. You can't be what you can't see. I felt like I had spent a lot of my life on a stage, often talking to rooms of of women, non binary individuals, and saying, you know, just do it. Grab that leadership moment. Like, we have to show up for each other. And so there was definitely a moment of saying, oh, I need to do that too. Um, A little terrifying at times, but I wanted to say, hey, women can be CEOs. Like, I never want my kids to grow up and not just see that as a normal part of life. Um, And women can run public companies. And it's tough, but I really think it's important to also lead the way, um, not just talk about it.
1: In terms of seizing the moment and leading the way, we're obviously at a very pivotal time in technology with AI. How are you looking at incorporating AI into Nextdoor?
0: Yeah, um, it is an amazing moment in time. I felt so blessed to show up to the Truman Show that was the GSB um, in 2000 because there was a platform change happening, right? The internet, um, yes, I am that old. Uh, you are all living through something that I think is literally orders of magnitude bigger in terms of a platform change. It's such a seminal moment. Um, you know, at, a, at its ground level, data is everything. If we're gonna build these LLMs, um, clearly we see it in action already. And so from a next door perspective, what I get excited is we own the local knowledge graph. So we have a really unique graph, no one else has it. That is one of the interesting things about social networks is you have to plant your flag and own your graph, right? LinkedIn owns your kind of uh, colleagues, your work environment. Facebook is your friends and family, but next door is your local knowledge graph. And that data is very dynamic. So if you think about, you know, we just grabbed a coffee over at, it turns out there's multiple Coupa Cafes on Stanford campus, who knew? But the Coupa Cafe, right, at the moment I could easily have tapped in, like, here's the special today. By tomorrow that data is cold, it's not interesting anymore, but it's very different from a Google local search or even a Yelp search, right? It's way more... Um, it's got a lot more color and texture and so on to it. It's also data that's already pre-labeled, thanks to the 85 million people on our platform. What I mean by that is, many you'll hear many companies talking about needing to go label data. It's often kind of Mechanical Turk is how they do it. Um, but in our case, if you post a recommendation, it's clearly a recommendation. If you post lost, it's clearly lost. If you, you flag something for moderation, then that gives us another piece of, of labeling to that data, that here's content that a neighbor feels could or should be moderated. Um, so it's a very interesting moment as a platform. Now, we're definitely trying to, you've got the very big guys in the room, guys and gals in the room, but like the, the Googles, the Metas, the um, uh, Microsofts. And then the open AIs, Anthropics, and I clearly just only talked about U.S. companies. Let's look to what's going on in Asia as well. Um, But then I think there's what a practitioner like a next door can do sitting on top of some of those models. We use um, an API to open AI. And a couple of the places we're, we're moving into right now, number one is we're helping neighbors just make more engaging posts. So we can, as you begin to make a post, particularly in areas like recommendations, which is about 20-25% of of the content that happens on Nextdoor, it'll actually recreate the post for you to make it more engaging. So if you haven't, you all have experienced ChatGPT, but often I'm talking to a room of folks from all walks of life, all ages, who maybe haven't even heard of something like ChatGPT. Um, And I'm like, this is a way to experience it in a very non kind of frightening way. Something's actually going to help you. So that's one place we've deployed it um, and we are seeing better engagement, which is great. Um, A second way has actually been in areas of moderation. Um, We've done some amazing work with folks, Dr. Eberhardt sitting right here in the audience and Spark. Um, If you don't know the Do Lab they have, yes. Oh, hey. Um, It's wonderful what they've done. So we deployed something actually way back in 2017 called Kindness Reminder. And it was premised on the social science of slowing people down. So when we see we're using ML all the time, like long before generative AI came along, AI ML has been in place to score every post. And when a post looks like it's getting to a heated moment, we'll slow you down by popping up a little um, contextual moment that says, hey, neighbors, remember, great communities are created with kindness. What we write there is Kind of important, but actually the more important thing is that we've made you read something. So now you're back in this part of your brain where you have learned to some degree, sometimes big, sometimes small, to overcome bias. Um, today, that's actually been very successful for us. About 35 to 37 percent of all people who see the Kindness Reminder actually decide to edit their post because that's what we prompt you to do. But now with generative AI, We're actually now offering you a constructive way to do it. Because I think, I do think about the other 70-ish percent or 65% that don't edit. I'm like, where are you all at? (laughs) You just want to not be that constructive in your community or are you a bit stuck? You don't actually know how to word it in a way that's constructive. So even we can nudge up another now, maybe it's another 30% we can grab through an AI. That's a great outcome. And I, when, when I talk to folks about this, if I go back to Northern Ireland, we had to get people around a table where they did not want to talk to each other in any sort of constructive way. And remember, it was brutal. Like, you might be sitting at a table with someone who maybe murdered a member of your family, right? These are not like, you know, you didn't take your bins out or who was it, you know, that parked their car where I didn't like them. This was awful conversations or what went on in South Africa, right? When people had to talk about what had happened, like real trauma. But just getting people around that table to be constructive, look what can happen, right? We created peace almost exactly 25 years ago. So on a very much smaller context, if we could just help people be more constructive, can we actually therefore start to create better, healthier communities? Because I actually think the worst thing you can do is close down the conversation. So in a lot of platforms, they move to moderation, removing content. I'm really trying to nudge people to say, here's how we can have these tough conversations, but have them in a way where maybe we're more open to listening.
1: So based on what you described, Nextdoor is tackling some of the biggest issues in society and that we see rife throughout social media. There's also seems to be this very interesting confluence or overlap between what Nextdoor offers as a private company and then facilitating some public sec- traditionally public sector interests. So you mentioned the hurricane response. I know you were also personally involved in Governor Newsom's rollout of the COVID-19 response. So can you speak to A how you see next door is kind of having this intersection with government yeah. and then b where you see that those two things should be delineated and those responsibilities being kept separate
0: yeah so if you go back to the definition of a neighborhood um it's not just the residents right a healthy thriving neighborhood is the neighbors but it's the businesses it's the public agencies it's the school it's the church and an end, right? There's many, many organizations at play, and so we view it next door as important to bring all those organizations to the platform. So today we have about almost six thousand now, I think, public agencies that can range from the local library to FEMA to 10 Downing Street to the London Mayor's office, right? So it can go very broad, nationally, down to super, super micro. Um, Last year, I think it's last year's data, there were 18 billion dollar disasters, climate-related disasters in the United States alone. I think the total cost to the economy was about $175 billion. Those are moments where, as I talked about with Hurricane Harvey, it is vital, frankly, that residents are involved. um, Because those are the moments where you all are gonna save each other, Think about your own experience in COVID. I'm sure even in the GSB community, People stepped up, right? You maybe went to the pharmacy for someone that couldn't, that was immunocompromised. Um, maybe you thought about an elderly person that might not be able to get out of their home. And so this is the power of really energizing community, but there still needs to be a link often to the public agency to know what to do, how to do it, where, where are supplies, you know, if there's sandbags or whatever. We want to make sure that that messaging is coming through the platform as well. And in fact, we just added in, in a kind of trifecta, just added in weather alerts for exactly this reason. So now working with weather company to say, OK, in the moment of, say, a natural disaster, you can both get the, the commercial side, a weather alert, plus what's going on with the, the local public sector, plus then how can neighbors, the private sector, rise to help. So I think that's where you get the beauty of it. I do absolutely believe that there is a dividing line, though. It's usually where, the, where you know ultimately the private sector starts to fail is the moment when the public sector has to step in. Um, you know, Do we do that incredibly well? No. I, it was eye-opening to work on Governor Newsom's COVID response in good ways because I could see the diversity around the table. There were groups of people I would never normally sit at a table with. Unions, for example, um, very important and powerful groups in California. But it was also, as someone who works in the private sector, sometimes frustrating the speed with which you could get anything or maybe nothing done, because there were so many competing elements and people, rather than working on the thing here, like I was working particularly on small businesses, Small businesses were devastated. If you had an in-real-life business, if you were a hair salon, if you were even the local pizza shop or whatever, I guess you could still deliver, but you were being devastated. And we couldn't pass something simple as like how to just get you money to pay your employees because people, the many constituents around the table who all had their own thing they wanted, wanted that to get tacked on. And then the whole thing couldn't move forward because everyone disagreed with all the tack-ons. Um, it was a place to see both when you can almost pull something off to the side, just go work on it and make it happen and ask a little bit less for permission and just do. You could see the power because then when you do get something moved, when you have the state of California coming behind you, you're no longer talking about like, can we hit 10,000 businesses? You're hitting millions of businesses So it's both the power of the state, but also the slowness. And I'm sure many of you are probably doing joint degrees here and thinking about how do we inject some of that speed, some of the competitive elements that I think the private sector does so well into the public sector, but also recognize that a healthy, thriving public sector is needed to kind of catch the people that fall through the safety net.
1: That's such an incredible impact, and it is everything that I nerd out about at the GSB. I could ask you 30 more questions. (laughs) In the interest of time, because I do want to leave some room for the audience to ask questions, we do have one final question that we're asking each member of our series this year. So as you know, our theme is redefining tomorrow. And so Sarah Fryer, as the CEO of Nextdoor, if you could make one change to redefine tomorrow, what would it be?
0: Um, Simply, it's that everyone in the world would know six neighbors or more. And that might sound very facile. We have done a bunch of research on loneliness, in particular, um, done with an incredible academic, Julianne, Dr. Julianne holt Winstead out of BYU. And she used the platform and used our data to try to find a statistically significant moment when feelings of social isolation would abate. And that magic number is six, um, six neighbors. So if I think about a vision for the future, I mean, of course, I'm talking my book a little bit, but I really would love to see that re-knitting of community, that that way I experienced my parents in action in our little village in Sign Mills, 2,000 people, but the way I saw them in action. Because when that social fabric comes back together again, when you have high social capital, Like if you've read any of the work of Dr. Putnam out of Harvard, for example, or Mark Granovetter actually here at Stanford, you'll know that when that social capital starts to build back up, the outcomes broadly are just incredible. You get better health outcomes. People literally live longer. Like an older person, for example, that never gets to talk to someone else in real life, That's worse, in Julianne's words, worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day in terms of its impact on your health. Um, House house prices go up. Home equity, right? Usually the largest way that people save for their future go up, right? Broken window effect comes into, into play. People care about their community. Suddenly everyone starts to care a little bit more. Child outcomes go up. Right, Because a neighbor might be looking out for a kid coming home from school. Maybe they're getting bullied on the way home. Maybe they don't have anywhere to go do their homework that's a little quieter. So suddenly a neighbor kind of pulling them in and saying, you can, you can work here for an hour till your parents get home from work. But that can make all the difference. So I go back to, I started simple. For all of you, the magic number is six neighbors. Do you know six neighbors? Have you taken the time to just go out and maybe knock on a door, say hello to people? Um, but then the meta effect, uh, the vision for the future, right, is this reconnected society at a grassroots level because I really don't believe it's going to happen tops down. That's
1: amazing. I'd like to now turn it over to the audience. And I'm very intrigued about your six-neighbor uh, mm-hmm. goal for the future. How do you view the, like, housing shortage that we have in the U.S.? Do you think it'll be more of a shift to multifamily housing, like, Tighter communities in proximity, or do you think it'll be a mix of what we currently have? Like do you guys have a view on that next at next door, your personal view, et cetera?
0: Yeah, we we don't have a view per se. What we see happen on Nextdoor, if I were to kind of relate it back, is that where Nextdoor tends to fly first is if you think about the the kind of CBD, right? The central business district, very urban. Um, when you get out into sprawl. Next door tends to really take off. So people are in tight enough proximity, but they tend to have maybe started to move to that moment where they're renting for a longer period of time. Maybe they're starting to own a house. Then suburban works really well. Where we tend to break down is actually in that middle of the, of the donut, um, and then also in hyper rural. Rural is not great because local can be miles and miles apart. It's hard to get enough content. Doesn't mean it couldn't happen, but it's just much harder. And then in the middle, we've spent a lot of time head scratching on it. Is it a problem of the product, or is it a problem? Is it just like not? Is there no product market fit yet? I think it's a little bit of both. I think in those very urban areas, to your point about the housing, where maybe people are much tighter, maybe you're going more vertical and so on, you tend to find that. There's so much noise and not a lot of signal, so You have to be really careful what distance is. In fact, we're rethinking the product at the moment to get away from the idea of hardwired kind of neighborhood boundaries. Um, we changed it a couple of years ago to just let the algorithm decide what content was interesting because everyone's concept of local is different, right? To me, I'm, I love Marin. I'm actually, I think of Marin as kind of home, so I'm quite happy to hear from a pretty wide area. Some people get so irate if it's going beyond their street. They're like, why are you sending this content to me? It's not interesting. Um, But then it also changes based on the job that you're trying to get done, right? If I've lost my dog, there's probably a radius that makes sense. If it's like, what's that noise? It's probably like like a very small radius. If I want a plumber, I'm probably fine going to 20 miles because she's probably got a like a van and she's going to drive to me so we kind of realized that we would let the content do the talking rather than trying to do this artificial neighborhood boundary we're shifting it again it's called project sun you can understand why where the person becomes the center of their own universe and we let that interplay with the content Um, so in that cbd i think part of it is um, the product doesn't have good product market fit But I also think there's something in that area, which goes back to your question of like where housing happens, that often people are much more transient. They're not invested in their community because they don't have a reason to care about it. Um, Homeowners very much care about their community because it impacts their their house price. Um, They're often very young, um, like maybe just out of college, sort of young, Um, and they They don't really have a thing about community yet. Like their friends are the people, they're happy to go across the whole city to go hang out with their friends, but they're probably never going to knock on the door next door unless it's a complete emergency. So how do we change that psyche? And I actually worry a little bit about generationally, right? We're we're more connected than ever and yet so disconnected from people who are just around us in real life. So I think that there's a a whole, uh, we could probably now call on Dr. Eberhardt to talk about that, but there's something going on psychologically with humanity that worries me. Um, In terms of fixing where you began, fixing the, the the, the unhoused population, I mean, that is, wow, that is a problem that just feels, when I go to work in San Francisco every day, has an element of feeling like an intractable problem, and yet it can't be. It's like anything, like if you have a business problem, you just need to break it down. And I think go after it in pieces. And right now I don't see our public sector as particularly well put together to do that. Um, but we have to do something, right? When we chose our headquarters at Nextdoor, we're actually in the tender line and people come to visit and they're often a little taken aback. They're like, did you actually choose this? We're like, yes, we did not wanna live in a tech bubble. Um, I want my, uh, I want me, but I want my employees to kind of, as they look outside the office, understand a community that's under duress and think about the why we do it, rather than you know coming to work on your bus and you've got your Mac and you've got your snacks in the kitchen and you know you're wondering if you're going to make it home for your yoga class. Sorry, I'm being a little facetious on purpose. Like that is not real life community, and I think it's really important. You're all the business leaders of the future. I really want you to think about not putting people into bubbles and not putting people into these very synthetic situations, but how do you kind of lean back into the communities that you're going to serve as amazing business leaders, but like make sure that you don't create like an air gap between you and them, like actually get down and be proximate.
1: Hi, I'm Matt. I'm also an MBA one. Um, Given you had so many different senior leadership roles before becoming CEO, um, what have you found to be uniquely challenging about the CEO role and being at the helm versus your other roles? Um, And how do you address those challenges?
0: Yeah, so on this, I have now become the cliche. I totally denied it for my first couple of years of being a CEO, but I think the CEO's job is very lonely. (laughs) And what I'm realizing it's because you sit between you know a little bit you have a mask on for your the everyone who works with you for you at the company and then you have to outbound to a board and so you're kind of in this stuck in the middle moment and often you don't really have someone to talk to about it because you can't really talk to your leadership team endlessly about your board you have to create a little space and then for your board you need to be mindful of like what do you want to really message to them to be consistent so you don't feel like because they only get to talk to you every 90 days, I mean, you call them a lot in the middle. And so you can be leaning one way at one period, and then you come back 90 days later, and you've done 90 days of work, so your, your opinion has evolved, but to them, it can almost feel like you're flip-flopping. Um, so I'm very mindful of that when I sit on boards to try to really be empathetic to the fact that we feel like we're getting whiplashed, but actually the company's like, no, 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 we did all this work for 90 days. We've just evolved our thinking. So I do think it's lonely. And I think that's the moment where it's really good to then have a fabric of connection with other CEOs Um, and and not always in a super formal context, because when you meet people more formally, everyone's got their mask on and we're all very like, you know, we're working on these business problems. And then sometimes it's good to just go have a drink with someone that the walls come down a little and you're like, oh, that's happening for you. That's happening for me, too. And so. I think that is the hardest thing, of like sitting in that air gap.
1: Time for one more question. Uh, Hi, my name is Eddie. Um, I'm actually a freshman at the university, but um, um, my question was, in your different senior leadership roles, how did you, uh, what was your process for getting up to speed on different industries from like enterprise SaaS to FinTech to uh, consumer internet?
0: Oh, thank you. And thank you for coming over. Crossing the road. Yay. Some of of my best moments at the GSB were actually when I crossed back the other side. Um, I was talking, I did a Spanish class. I did an engineering class. I think I did an art class at one stage. I loved it. So take advantage, people. Come both ways. Um, That is a great question because it's a skill, like as a consultant, it's actually a skill you have to learn because pretty much you go to meet your client and it might be the first time you've ever seen their industry, but you're being paid to show up and actually consult them. And so you cannot be the, you know, you cannot be ignorant for too long a period. So A, I'm an avid reader um, to begin with. And I really try to not narrow my reading there. I actually still get the paper Wall Street Journal. Don't laugh at me. But I do that because when I find when I read online, I naturally curate myself. I'm, you know, they ask you to, right? You, it's like, what are you interested in? Technology. And suddenly, everything you're reading seems so like, oh, they picked it for me because they did. It's an algorithm. Versus when I open up the Wall Street Journal, I kind of find myself reading almost, some, they, they feel random at the time. But why I think that's important is if you think about the course of your span of your career or your life. Right, you kind of read enough interesting, different things. There's moments in time where suddenly it becomes very apropos of the moment. Um, beyond the paper, I am an avid, avid reader. I, I try to read 52 books a year. That's my personal goal every year. I usually get into the 40s. This year's a good year, actually, um, because I, there's a lot going on with things like AI. And so I tend to, again, read because I, I, I can usually find then ways that it's going to matter in the situation I'm in. Um, The book that I really like a lot on this is called Range. And it's this idea of like, you actually do become a better leader when you have all of these different um, skills feeding in. Um, I think one of their archetypes is Leonardo da Vinci. And I read Range at the same time as I read Walter Isaacson's um, biography of da Vinci. And it was fascinating, because you had this incredibly curious individual that was a sculptor. But to understand how metal would flow to sculpt, he was actually leaning on work he'd done around the water system in Italy which then was tied back to how blood pumped in the human body when he was doing dissections and so on. And so I think about that a lot when people are like, "Oh, you've done so many different things." I'm like, "Hell no." Like it's very we're very narrow actually relative to I think how humans used to be. So reading is a big part of it and then I particularly I think in your 30, 60, 90. So when you join something new, 30 is just listen. And try to, I often try to have three questions that I ask every single person I meet with. And I'm not trying to I, I am going to compare and contrast ultimately, but it kind of you're listening, but you've got some framework. In the Once you get to 30, people want you to do stuff. And that's kind of the dangerous moment because you still actually don't know enough. So in 30 to 60, I normally try to start to find maybe smaller things where I can put some points on the board. At 90, I think you have to start acting. And that's when you have to come with kind of a first push of what's my strategy top down. Um, And then from there, my tactics. I think a lot of people in life are very much ready, fire, aim. So (laughs) your need for speed to get going it's worth taking that moment to write down strategically what you're trying to do, and then the tactics build from there. Good strategy should be multi, the last multi years. You don't have to roll it all out in 90 days, that would be a lot, but you need to have a frame that at least can stay somewhat true over a longer arc. That's a good question. Thank you. Thank <laughs> Lovely you so to good. meet you.
1: Thank you so much. Sarah, like any good GS beer, I know you have the rest of your day planned out by five-minute increments. <laughs> I do. So And so I, <laughs> so I want to keep you on time. What we're going to finish with is a quick lightning round. So I'm going to ask you, it's a view from the top tradition. I'm going to ask you five questions in rapid fire. We're going to finish in two minutes to be perfectly on time. Okay, let's do this. And it'll be a fill-in-the-blank, so I'll say the beginning of the sentence, and you finish it with a short phrase or word that first pops into your mm-hmm. mind. Okay. The one thing city folk don't understand about growing up in the country is? Animals,
0: like they're messy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the biggest culture shock I faced moving from Ireland and the UK to America was? Oh, just sense of humor. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: is that bad? I'm not gonna tell you which way, you're all guessing. <laughs>
1: The most applicable lesson I learned from a master's of engineering in the study of metals is?
0: How to release gold out of sulfide ores? No, um, yeah, that I actually love seeing something in a lab come alive in the real world.
1: My favorite memory of the GSB is?
0: Meeting my husband. Second only to being cold called in Garth Stallone's <laughs> class the first time I walked into it.
1: <laughs> and last but not least, if I could put up a billboard in town square with one tagline of advice for everyone here in the audience, it would say.
0: Uh, so I'm stealing. My favorite Irish poet, Seamus Heaney, his epitaph, he's buried very close to our I grew up. It's very Irish, start talking about a burial right at the end of everything. Um, <laughs> but I love this. Um, walk on air despite your better judgment. If you think about it, (laughs) it's good. Take risks, your intuition, let it guide you. Don't always be logic driven, but walk on air despite your better judgment.
1: That is the most beautifully poetic note I think any of you from the top has ever ended on. (laughs) Sarah, it has been such an honor and a pleasure interviewing you you, and we wish you the most success in your career and everything moving forward. Thank Thank you you so much. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. The interview was conducted by me, Zach Doherty, of the MBA class of 2024. Lily Sloan composed our theme music. Michael Riley and Jenny Luna produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.